I'd run a meeting and it would just go all afternoon with no agenda, no no deliverables. I I can't be this <laughs> terrible manager. Like I need to start reading some books, finding some mentors. I need to like start being better at my job because I'm I'm just kind of scraping by still. That's the voice of Matt Mullenweg, founder and CEO of Automatic, which owns WordPress and many other properties that are the foundation of today's web. WordPress alone is now used by more than 60 million websites and more than a third of the top 10 million websites. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's Go Time with Matt Mullenweg. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. When Matt and I connected, we were in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. On the one hand, I wanted our conversation to touch upon Matt's distributed management model because I thought it might help other entrepreneurs navigating this new paradigm for the first time. Matt's been a pioneer of this for many years. And by the way, he has an entire podcast devoted to this topic called Distributed, which I highly encourage you to check out. But as Matt and I chatted, it became clear to me that this episode was about something even more timeless and broadly applicable. You see, Matt has truly stood the test of time as a CEO, but this success story almost came to a screeching halt because of Matt's early struggles as a leader. This is no knock on him. As one of the most honest leaders I know, and as you'll hear in a minute, Matt has no reservations about sharing his early shortcomings or even his concerns about how to avoid mistakes in the present time. This is one of his many strengths, and because of his learn-it-all mentality, Matt's been able to capitalize on some breaks and valuable connections early on in his career to set him up for greatness. And I think you'll see from the interview that Matt Mullenweg is just a gem of a human being. Let's talk to him. Matt Mullenweg, welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh, you kidding? Uh, delighted to have you on the show. So you're a very young guy still, but that doesn't mean you haven't been at this for a while. How did you even get interested in computers and the internet in the first place? How old were you and how did you get exposed to technology? Yeah, for me, a lot of it came from my dad. You know, like many sons in Texas, Houston, I know you're from Texas too. Um, I just did everything my dad did. So when he mowed the lawn, I'd walk behind him with a little toy lawnmower. I played saxophone, started playing saxophone because he played saxophone in high school. And uh, his job, his day job was programming. You know, he worked for oil companies. Uh, pretty much my whole life. And um, he had gotten from University of Houston kind of early computer science degree uh, when they started offering it in the 70s. And that was his uh, whole career. So there were always computers around the house. And he was very much a tinkerer. So he was fixing our cars, building furniture, fixing up boats, like whatever he would kind of get, he would always kind of hack on it. And so I, f I feel like seeing that, I sort of applied that a lot to uh, hardware and software, initially making some computers for myself, for gaming or friends or, you know, local musicians or things, and then later getting into the, the craft of writing software. So that was just uh, the path I decided to go down. The sort of big things were, um, I visited San Francisco 
Mm-hmm. So that was like Mecca to me. <laughs> you know, it was yeah, so just, how did you, how did you go from Houston to San Francisco? Like what, how did that transpire? Totally random, complete coincidence. In Houston, I organized a, a user group kind of at a local nonprofit. We have interest user groups and I organized the one around Palm Pilots. So every month I'd organize a program, invite speakers, kind of lead this Palm Pilot user group, which is, <laughs> let me tell you, I was very popular. <laughs> but it was really fun and actually really good to get in front of a group of adults and, and do this thing every month. Um, this designer named Jeffrey Zeldman made a set of icons for the Palm Pilot that would change all the default icons with like these cool 50s, you know, kind of Art Deco looking icons. Um, so I became a fan of Jeffrey Zeldman. That's also how I, he started learning HTML and CSS standards. That's how I got into that. He posted on his blog um, that he was going to be in Austin, Texas for this thing called SXSW, South by Southwest, um, which was going through the interactive portion of South by Southwest had shrunk kind of the, after the bubble of the late 90s, 2000s. It was probably only like four or 500 people. So really, really small. And I was like, Zeldman's going to be in Texas. No way. So I, uh, I wrote what was actually a hot check to get a student ticket to South by Southwest uh, for a couple hundred bucks. My sister lived in Austin, so I just crashed at her place. And I had a gas card from my parents. You know, like, so I was like, hey, can I use this gas card to go to Austin and, uh, and go to this conference? They're like, yeah, okay. Um, and at the conference, it was so small that I ended up um, sort of meeting my idols, oh, you know, yeah. uh, Jeffrey Zeldman. There was a fellow named Tantek Chelik who was developing one of the major web browsers at the time. Eric Meyer, who was a big, you know, kind of advocate of teaching people how to code. Um, so I just got to meet all the, all the biggest bloggers. I mean, Ev was there. I met Ev and Jason Shellen and all the blogger folks. So it was kind of the whole internet at that time, the independent internet came together. And again, it was just... It felt like a couple hundred people. So you kind of met everyone. So it's um, still early in Web 2.0. I remember going to the O'Reilly Emerging Tech Conference. In yeah. Ohio, you know. Was that the one that Bezos came to? Yeah. I remember he was sitting a few seats yeah. down. Just He's there sitting in the audience just like a normal <laughs> person with his MacBook Pro laptop. Totally. I, I was at that one. Yeah. And I got a picture with Jeff Bezos and it's funny. Like It's like a really young dorky me and a really young dorky <laughs> Jeff Bezos <laughs> before he got swole. Yeah, so Tantek Chelik later invited me to come out to San Francisco to crash on his couch. And I was like, cool. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, you know, saved up some money, flew out. And uh, that week I was in San Francisco. Uh, both of Tantek met a lot of really cool people here. But I really felt like I found my tribe. Like in Houston, there was like a dozen of us who were into like 802.11b and open source and the Linux group and the Palm Pilot group and everything like that. But it was kind of the same people in all the groups. <laughs> We'd all go to each other's stuff. And in San Francisco, I felt like this was all the people we were following online. And I visited Yahoo, I visited Google, I visited um, all the companies I could, and uh, and one of them was CNET. You know, I I blogged that I was going to go out, and a fellow at CNET named Mike Tatum said reached out and said, "Hey, you're going to be in San Francisco. Why don't you come out and, and meet us?" What I didn't realize was all these companies were like interviewing me essentially. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> I think at Google, they were wanted to make a blogger appliance. Kind of they had a Google search appliance. It would, it would literally be a box that you'd buy yep. that looked cool. It was in Google colors, and you'd stick it in your data center, and that would be like your internal Google. So they wanted to do that for blogger, for internal blogging. Very prescient, actually. But the, the way they had written blogger wouldn't work for that. So they wanted to see if WordPress could run on this 
box that they sold to people. Uh, it's kind of funny. It reminds me of Silicon Valley where the guy comes in. He's like, we're going to make this box. <laughs> it was kind of what you did at the time. So I talked to them about that. Basically, when I returned back to Houston, I started getting some job offers uh, from these companies. Yeah, And WordPress was still pretty early and was generating $0. So it wasn't like uh, there was any, I was still just making money from computers and building websites. So the most interesting ended up being seen. And the reason was they were a media company, not a technology company. So if you go to work for Google, still today, um, if you work for any software company, you kind of sign off all the intellectual property to that company yep. uh, for good reasons. They need to, if they sell the company or IPO, they need to know that they own all the IP for what they do. But CNET didn't care about that because they're a media company. And so they said, they essentially did a carve out for me where they said, anything you do that's open source, you can retain the copyright and all the intellectual property rights. So to me, you know, especially growing up, um, steeped in jazz culture there's so many stories about these musicians who sold their masters you know they sold the rights of their original recordings without even realizing it i haven't realized it and kind of had been taken advantage of and so honestly it, it wouldn't have mattered i could have gone to google and kept doing wordpress but like in my head there was this concept of like you have to own your masters so that was uh the thing i optimized for it ended up being a great decision because you know wordpress is a cms content management system so content management systems were kind of invented at cnet because they were the first large-scale publisher so vignette and all the early ones or vignette had actually spun out of there so then okay so then is is wordpress a business yet or is it still it's still kind of a hobby with a group of people it, it was it would gotten some donations, but I mean, we're talking about, talking about hundreds of dollars. Okay. <laughs> I was basically funding it out of my CNET paycheck okay. um, and credit cards <laughs> that were running up. It wasn't really clear it was going to be a business yet, but when I moved out, I did start to hear from some venture capitalists who said, hey, you should go do this as a thing. You know, one of the earliest users of WordPress and you know, my, one of my best friends today is Om Malik, who yep. is a journalist. He was kind of hyper-connected and as a journalist knew everyone. And uh, the very first WordPress meetup we did at Chat Cafe, which is an Indian place on 3rd Street. It was maybe eight people and almost one of them. One of the early times we met, um, he really kind of connected me to both our initial investors, you know, um, Phil Black, Tony Conrad, um, including some people who I ended up not taking money from that I should have, like Jeff Clavier, Mark Andreessen. Um, but he introduced me, and he also introduced me to Tony Schneider, who is the gentleman who uh, recruited to be the CEO of Automatic. Um, so it was really, really special. You know, he had just done, Tony had just sold his company called Oddpost to Yahoo, which was the, like the big exit. I mean, you sold to Yahoo, that was like, you made it. <laughs> yep. And, um, you know, Ohm did a cover story for Business 2.0 on, on the sale. And, you know, he said to Tony, you're not going to last this big company. <laughs> There's this kid out of Houston who's making this cool thing. You should meet him. I think you get along. And that was kind of the, the matchmaking that um, led us to meet. And, and so, but, but it sounds like it still wasn't a company yet. So all the co places were saying you should raise money or, or these feces trying to put in. But honestly, like I had just talked my parents into letting me move out from Houston. <laughs> and, you know, part of the pitch was, oh, it's a public company. They have healthcare, like they have a building. You know, my mom drove out with me so she could like check it out, make sure I wasn't getting scammed or like joining a cult or something. Um, so like she yeah, kind of warmed them up to it. I wasn't yet ready to say like, hey, all that healthcare, all that everything's all going away. <laughs> my idea was kind of that WordPress was working well, but to use it, you had to be a developer. 
Like you had to set up a database and upload all these files and things like that. So if we could make it where you could click just a few buttons, kind of like Blogger, and get a blog going, um, we had a cool interface and flexibility that would be really compelling. So uh, I pitched this to CNET and said, uh, hey, you know, all these other internet giants have a blogging system. Literally, they all did. The big four at that time, AOL, Yahoo, Google, Microsoft, all blogging systems. You should have one too. But blogging kind of was becoming a bad word. So yeah. the ones that were kind of going mainstream were more political blogs. And they were known for what I think we describe now as an early version of like a cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So there was like a one story I remember, I'm going to mess it up because I don't remember it exactly, but there was like a, a politician, a congressperson of some sort who said something he thought was private at like an event down in Louisiana. It was recorded. Someone, you know, had like a little recorder and that became like a huge big thing on the blog, Drudge Report, the kind of sites at the time blew it up and he ended up resigning. And that seemed to people what it was going to be. It was like a bunch of people fighting on the internet and like CNET just didn't want to touch that. And the, also the other thing going on was CNET was like kind of like a mainstream publisher for tech news. So they had news.com, GameSpot. They had these like big tech publications with hundreds of employees and developers and editorial staffs and everything. They looked a lot like newspapers and they were starting to be disrupted by blogs as well. So Mike Arrington was starting TechCrunch. Um, you know, Nick Denton had Engadget and all the Gizmodo blogs and things like that. Or I think Jason Calcanis had Engadget. So whatever it was, people were starting these blogs that were creating content for one one hundredth the cost with one one hundredth the staff of these big publications that CNET was running. And they were pretty good and they were getting popular and in fact getting quite competitive to CNET's publications. So internally there was almost this anti-blog thing where they were like we don't want we don't want anyone to be able to publish like you know we're about trusted content with that gets edited and fact checked and they were right it was amateurs it just turned out those amateurs could get really good and they actually knew a lot and one of the amazing things about Arrington was he was a lawyer so he was great at reading stuff and could write really quickly on any number of topics so he would get the post out hours before you know they could boot up their old CMS that was another thing that seen at the most awkward meeting I'd ever been in I think it was the editor-in-chief or something, you know, had this, it was one of the, the big conference rooms, 12, 15 people. And it was the team and the leads of the people building the in-house scene at CM, CMS. And he said, all right, uh, you know, they projected the, the screen and they said, okay, I've got a post ready to go. Um, you know, here it is, here's the text. He emailed the document and said, now post this to, uh, to the website, like the live website, and let's see how long it takes. Long story short, the process took about 15, 20 minutes wow. um, you know, for them to like load it into the system, set all the fields, and then the kind of publishing time was probably five or 10 minutes. He says, Matt, and I'm literally, I look like I'm 12 years old on the corner <laughs> with my laptop. And he's like, okay, uh, post it to WordPress. So plug in the laptop and you know, copy and paste and you post it, it's live seconds later. And the daggers, the lasers, <laughs> these guys were looking at me. They were just like, this punk kid, what punk the, kid. you know? Okay. I felt like one foot tall, you know, like it was definitely awkward. Um, but to CNET's credit, they, they had started to use WordPress a lot of places and they were really seeing that the speed of publishing, the agility of the content management system was holding them back. So they wanted to make their thing just as fast. But didn't you pitch CNET to like, invest in WordPress and you would have stayed there, but instead you started the company because they turned the pitch down. 
So I pitched it to build it there. So CNET had all these cool domains like online.com, com.com. They just had every cool domain in the world because they got them early. So I was like, hey, why don't we do like an online.com or like a web.com or something and just allow anyone to make a subdomain, publish, have a website. And they just didn't want the user-generated content. You know, they, they were really about kind of editorially driven stuff. I also felt a lot of loyalty because they had, they had moved me out. You know, they gave me this great salary. They gave me a few thousand dollars to move my stuff and, and everything. So, but I, I wanted to do this thing. I was pretty committed. So, but uh, they said, hey, well, will you finish up these projects you're on? So I was like, yeah. So I ended up staying like another three or four months to, to finish out those projects. But they were like, you can go do this thing. And in fact, Shelby, who is a CEO and CNET itself, each put in, um, when we later raised a round, uh, put in 25K each, which they sold for over a million two years later. Okay. <laughs> they should have held on to it. It would be even more now. But, <laughs> but part of it as well for me is I was again conscious, like, um, I don't want CNET to come back later and say, like, hey, we, we own this thing you did. Uh, I was actually ended up being the third or fourth employee at Automatic. So uh, started the company and just started paying the other guys out of my paycheck. And we started working together. So they, uh, they kind of got that, started working on what would become WordPress.com. And, um, and I finished up my work at CNET. And it being a project that saved them you know, over $5 million a year. So I was really proud of that. They could replace some software they were using with something with WordPress. So they, they saved a ton of money. So I felt like I kind of paid my dues and could then start this company. You know, so that was, it was very kind of informal. Uh, the first three employees were other engineers who I'd already been working with. Uh, on the open source thing. And uh, then I joined myself. And we're all taking de minimis salaries. Probably, I think me, almost nothing. Maybe like 40 or 50K a year. Like much less than we'd work, you know, at any other jobs we could get. But that was kind of like the bootstrap. We we're like, okay, let's build this thing together. And if we do it right, maybe we can like be full-time contributing to open source, which was really our dream. And when did Tony join as a CEO then? I... I I think I met him. I don't know if I remember the exact timeline, but he ended up joining probably six or eight months later. When I got introduced to Tony, it was like uh, it's like meeting a business soulmate. You know, he was very kind. He he's from Switzerland. Came over. I uh, ended up going to college at Stanford. Did startups. Eventually re- became uh, the CEO of this company that sold to Yahoo. So, but had kind of an engineering background, so he really understood the tech side. Had this Swiss German mentality. Always on time really like no drama, like just kind of wants to figure out the best thing. And also believed and believes now in open source. I just got it from the very beginning. So yeah, this guy's always on time. I ended up being like 45 minutes late to the first meeting because <laughs> I just moved to San Francisco. I didn't realize how far things were. And so I thought, oh, this is just like two miles away. I'll walk to it. <laughs> ended up like not realizing there were hills and other things. Yeah. So I ended up getting there really late, but he waited. And what was supposed to be probably an hour we were together, we both ended up staying until basically nighttime in this patio outdoor restaurant thing uh, to the point where I hadn't brought a jacket. And I was like just shivering because I was so cold, but we were, we were just connecting when we were talking so well. It's like we didn't, neither of us wanted the conversation to end. So we ended up speaking like six or seven hours. He was the reason I decided to raise money actually, because I was just playing a bootstrap and we had some early revenue. We were making 10, 20 grand a month. I started to really build the revenue of the company, more than enough to support us. But um, I knew that if I raised money, they'd want to bring in adult supervision. <laughs> you know, because that was the Eric Schmidt at Google. You know, that's kind of the thing yep. you did then. Yep. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want that. 
but then when I was like, well, I can pick the adult, <laughs> uh, this guy, I'd be lucky to work with him. You know, I can, I learned so much every time I talk from him. And so it wasn't that I was hiring a CEO. I was just like, I really want to work with this guy in whatever capacity we can probably the rest of my life. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, it was really like being a business soulmate. And so I was able to convince Tony to join and, um, and then we've raised our first round, which is about a million dollars. Was there anything about, you know, he's, he was your business soulmate, but was there, was there anything premeditated on either one of your parts about knowing the traits you were looking for, a business partner, or is it just a, a, a accident of fate that you just happened to run into each other at the behest of home and it just worked out? You know, I, it was matchmaking. You know, <laughs> it's kind of a, a blind, blind setup. Uh, neither of us had met each other before, but home was like, y'all, y'all get along. You should really get together. And once we got together, it made clear, became clear. You know, I, I wanted him to be CEO because I, I believe in clear lines of reporting. Yeah. So I was going to report to him. But he did a really fantastic job knowing that I loved running things and leading things, like making a lot of space for me yeah. to um, essentially be like an understudy in a lot of ways. Huh. Um, so learn from his experience. He took a lot of things off my plate that I didn't like. but later grew to love, but like at the time I wasn't in the HR, legal stuff or other things. And uh, made space to really collaborate, you know, let me lead the product, but like let collaborate on it. You know, so bringing his experience to bear and his kind of common sense approach to things. So um, true partnership in a lot of ways. Yeah, learned a ton. Like I could have never been the CEO, become CEO of Automatic or be the CEO I am today if I hadn't studied essentially under Tony for eight years. Did you ever have any struggles at Automatic in the early years or was it one of these things where you were just happy to be getting a paycheck so that you could keep working on this thing. And it just started to get a life of its own. And it just, one thing yeah. led to another. You know, especially for Tony joined, made every mistake in the book. Okay. <laughs> so but we had no credit at the time because I had gotten like a Best Buy card in high school, forgot to pay it. So as a sole founder, the company credit became my, you know, 600 credit rating or something. And so we couldn't get any credit. Even after we raised money, I had a million dollars in the bank and the limit on our credit card was like $5,000. So the servers were just costing more than that. And so there was like <laughs> crises where like, how do we pay the credit card bill for all of our servers and things? How do we wire money to people? How do we, you know, there was an issue where we didn't have the wordpress.com domain. There's a whole drama around getting that domain. People suing us. There was like kind of just all of the above that uh, we were going through. And, um, you know, in some ways tumultuous, in some ways we didn't make a lot of mistakes that, uh, that I, I see, saw by other companies years down the road. So, for example, we brought in a CFO really early, part-time, uh, a great woman named Ann Dorman was part-time CFO. And, you know, Tony did, took over the books for me and kind of did it for a little while. But then he found this person who could come in and really kind of kept all that clean. She also did HR so like, and kind of gave us the documents and everything. So we, we were pretty good about following HR best practices from early on and how we hired, how we did compensation. And compensation is never perfect. You know, at any snapshot in time, there's going to be things which are not perfect within it. But I want to always on the arc towards fairness. Uh, any decision in the company, you know, if someone wants to talk about it, we're totally open to it and we can explain it and we can talk about it and uh, strive to be as fair as possible. Because ultimately, that's really what you want people to feel. We're, you know, we're still 
uh, a growing company. We're not gonna we're not as profitable as like a Nintendo or an Apple or something like that. Uh, so it's not the highest salaries in the world. But we want people to feel like they're contributing to something and they're getting fairly compensated for their contributions to it. And was there was there a palpable time when you felt like you know you you kind of transitioned from this zero to one? What were some of the things that kind of where you had to have a new kind of fun as you got bigger? You know, we had a lot of friction around the like fifteen to twenty people range. Yeah, because I had no idea what I was doing. So I, I'd I'd run a meeting and it would just go all afternoon with no agenda, no no deliverables. I, <laughs> and I was working with people who were generally like much more experienced. <laughs> and so I remember once at our first offsite, we were up at Stenson Beach. And uh, you know, we're all in one house because it's pretty small. And this fellow uh, who had joined from Cisco actually um, just got up and walked out. <laughs> he okay. was just so fed up with like us. He literally just stood up, walked out of the house, and walked down the beach. <laughs> He's just so pissed off. So like those things were rough. Like and and also because we were such, you know, better and worse, you become really close personal friends with everyone because you're kind of in the trenches. So you know when you when you fight, it feels like like you're you're fighting with your your partner or with your 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 significant other. So we also got an offer to buy the company. Someone tried to buy the company pretty early on. So when we were around that size, like twenty ish people. And one of the, you know, it's kind of silly to say in hindsight, but one of the things that made me seriously consider it was that I was like, well, we're all fighting with each other. Like maybe this, this is not fun. This is not something I want to do. Maybe, maybe this is kind of just where it, where it gets to, because it was just so heart wrenching to disappoint these people who you really respect and care about and to be at odds with them. That was definitely a pivot point, deciding not to sell. How did you get your act together? Right, like what? What were the what were the things that helped you transition into being more effective? I mean, I, I suppose Tony helped quite a bit. Um, yeah, well, but, he would give me a lot of rope too. Yeah, but like <laughs> you now know? you run the place and it's it's pretty big. So clearly, you've made some progress in your ability to manage things. Yeah, probably some of it was that I didn't listen to Tony enough. I was pretty headstrong. Um, I remember distinctly some of the big things was the. The offer to Tobias was um, kind of like a $200 million, which was just ridiculous because we were not making that much money. It would have netted me, you know, nine figures, and um, we would have joined a new thing that we'd have pretty significant equity going forward in this new thing. Um, and so that was, you know, definitely a serious consideration because yeah. I'm 23. Um, someone's like, you can be a Sentai millionaire. Yeah. Um, and there also was a culture back then, a little bit more of exiting early. Oh, um, I remember, well, I, I remember even the Flickr folks, right? They exited for, I think, $25 million. And it was one of the defining early exits. companies of Web 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you kind of like rinse, repeat, you know, sell it, stay a year or two, then do it again. Actually, I, I think when I started Automatic, I felt like a good outcome would have been if I could have sold it to Yahoo in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> Almost even like, you should get this... Um, Mike Moritz guy, you know, have him invest because he's on the board of Yahoo. So he'll help the deal in a couple of years. And <laughs> it happen. It'll make it happen. Um, but I also realized that while there was challenges, I was, um, I was like, well, what would I do if I had hundred million dollars? I was like, well, I kind of want to do exactly what I'm doing. I want to write software. I want to travel the world and meet WordPress users. And 
I want to, you know, build something with team because that's like the funnest thing. Like you build something that has an impact and will I, will the chance that that gets messed up be larger or smaller if we join this larger thing? And there's also time when lots of things will get shut down by the big companies yep. you know, or neglected. Um, so I was like, well, I think uh, we, we should make a go at it. And the, our investors as well were also making a pretty compelling alternative where they said, you know, take that as a valuation. We'll put in another, I think it was 25 or 30 million. Um, you know, some of it can go in the company, but also take some of secondary. So instead of making, you know, this million, make a few million, and then you can just focus on this. You don't have to worry about paying your rent or something like that. Just like really uh, work, build for the long term. And I give them a ton of credit because this was not common at the time, secondary sales. Oh, yeah. Now they're pretty standard, but at the time, especially for a young kid, <laughs> this was probably something that um, was not something you see a ton. But I don't know if it was Phil Black or John Callahan or maybe someone one of the true folks was like, if you're saying no to this, what are you saying yes to? Mm-hmm. And that just etched in my mind. Like, well, what am I saying yes to? And so I was like, well, let's say yes to create the web operating system to make the thing that could be 85 or 95% of the web. Um, and what do we need to change to do that? Well, we need some more capital. So we raised the money. And how do I need to work on myself? <laughs> I can't be this <laughs> terrible manager. Like I need to start reading some books. I need to start like t- finding some mentors. I need to like start really being better at my job because I'm, I'm just kind of scraping by still. Maybe what I was doing in college, I just doing the minimum to, <laughs> to did, get by. So I need to really up my game. And uh, that was a big wake up call. And was there any, in terms of your transition from sort of minimum viable sort of leader with making a lot of mistakes to now running an organization with a huge number of employees. What, what's the latest counts? Like 1300, yeah. 1300 people distributed throughout the world, multiple product lines, 38% of internet sites. Like was there a, a single book you read or a bit of advice or a course you took or just, was there, was there, was there, were there a couple yeah. of things that were just defining moments in your improvement? For me, I, I, I learn from books, probably the best. So I, I consider like these authors my mentors, you know, even though I might never ever meet them. Um, yeah. So things that I came across, I had already read a little bit of Plato, but I started to read some of the, the Stoics, Epictetus. Um, my friend Tim's book, I know you're friends with Tim too, The 4-Hour Workweek. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Seth Godin books, I don't remember which particular one, but they're all good. Guy Kawasaki did a book called The Art of the Start. Mm-hmm. Um, started to read some of the business classics like Good to Great, um, Robert Chiodoni's Influence. Yep. I think there's Jeffrey Gittemar, Little Red Book on Selling. Uh-huh. And I, I just read books on sales. Um, kind of anything that we were trying to figure out, I just you know go to Amazon, order five or six books on it, and just read them all. I felt like we weren't doing our pricing right. So I just got six books on pricing and went through them all. I think the one that worked out well was like Pricing on Purpose. Um, but I also read like the GE book on pricing, <laughs> you know, the super corporate stuff. Zen Habits, it was a blogger that led into a book. So all these, and, you know, I still try to read, you know, as many books as I can per year now, because I still have so much to learn. Black Swan by Nassim Taleb, I feel like was kind of around that time. Hugely influential, not just because it was um, an amazing book on its own, right? That really changed how I thought about things, but it was a portal to so much other literature. 
Like he would have dropped so many allusions and references to other books that it was almost like I stumbled into like this magical Aladdin library or something full of treasure. And just everything I took off the shelf was, would blow my mind. You can find gold everywhere, even like the really cheesy, corny stuff, like a book of quotations. <laughs> like Those can be really powerful. And I, I do believe in like extracting something from all of them. So a lot of what Automatic was was also just an experiment. Like I read a book like Drive by Dan Pink. He says mastery, autonomy, purpose are more important than anything else for people being happy. It's like, okay, if that's the framework. Let's try it out. How do we give people more of those three things and see how it goes? Yep. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm very proud of is like automatics retention rate is off the charts. You know, we have a regretted, regretted attention that the big acquisitions would do. We'll throw it off sometimes, but most years it's like 4%, 5%, which for tech companies is really, really low. Yeah. Um, I think it's because we really invest in these things that help people feel fulfilled in their work. Now, but another thing I, I seem to notice about you, Matt, is that um, you seem to have this trait that a lot of the long-term successful founders that I've seen have, which is you're more of a learn-it-all than a know-it-all. And so I've seen some founders get attached to the idea of being right or being the smartest person there or, or feeling sort of an, an imposter syndrome if they don't know. Whereas it, it feels to me like the folks that can go much farther than you'd ever imagine are the people who are just learning all the time. And they, mm -hmm. and they're, you know, they always realize there's more to know and there's always more to learn. And it's like, there's no, nothing wrong with not knowing all the answers. It's, it's, <laughs> there's just more joy in being to learn it all than in trying to keep, keep the, keep the illusion that you, anybody could be a know-it-all. I wish I was more of that in my 20s. <laughs> if you were to zoom back, you might see a bit more arrogance or strong headedness back then. But definitely in my 30s now, like that's been probably the, the title of the decade is there's so much more. You know, you just get knocked on your, your butt a few times. Like it's very um, humbling and you really start to realize all the things you don't know versus when you're young and think you know it all. <laughs> I really don't. And, and you know, there's going to be a lot of founders listening to this what would you like founders to know? I mean, we're, we're in this pretty wild time where we have a pandemic, we've got mm. all types of political unrest and social strife and, uh, you know, international friction and, um, you know, Fortune 500 uh, spending trillions of dollars just to buy back their own stock. What, what would you like entrepreneurs to know? What would you like to see from them? What do you think they could learn from your experience? Or if you are in their shoes now, how would you think about the future? I mean, the two big things I advocate for are distributed and open source. Distributed is a little easy now, but if you're building a company, if you can you know, create opportunity all over the world through a distributed structure, that's really powerful. And then open source, I believe if you want to accelerate humanity, you know, if you get jazzed by the idea of going to Mars or all this other stuff, like thinking of the earth as like a big connected thing, um, open source is the best way to accelerate humanity because software is now the software of our culture, of our evolution. You know, we're evolving now in the information space, not the, not the physical biological space, although maybe someday. And open source is, is the best way to do that. So that's first I'd say if you're considering anything like, you know, you only get a few chances to have a, a swing at it. <laughs> um, and life is relatively short. 
your younger years, you do have a ton of energy and like natural resources you can put to bear on problems. So just work on the thing that really, really, really matters. And I believe open source and big problems can be that. You know, in Pearl, there's this uh, funny saying that there's more than one way to do it. I would get really discouraged early on because I didn't have the background, the college education, the whatever it was of all the other entrepreneurs that I was seeing, all the role models I was looking at, knowing that there's more than one way to do it. <laughs> and what, you know, there's never going to be someone with exactly my path or exactly Mark Zuckerberg's path or something else. Again, it was a point in time. And that's cool you know, because the thing that replaces Facebook's Hopefully that doesn't replace WordPress, but maybe someday, you know, it would be created by someone who does it from a completely different point of view and completely different frame and a completely different way of doing it. If you could think about how to improve the internet in the next decade, how, how do we get back to uh, a world where it feels like it, it's, a, it's a bottoms up phenomenon rather than a few really big companies that own all the data and seem to you know, be aggregating and amassing more power all the time. Cooperation. I really appreciate the idealism that existed then. It's very much open web, very much connecting things. You know, something that um, John Patel and Tim O'Reilly really advocated for this Web 2.0 was going to be about how everything was open and connected. And I, I try to bring that idealism today. You know, 2020, yeah. the world is like a little, a little rough sometimes. We have... You know, the internet's turning into the splinter net. We're having like firewalls, balkanization. And I think there's still so much potential in that vision of an open, connected, independent web that really I try to make it my business and life mission to bring that back. You know, the, the deep psychosis of a lot of these companies that survived a dark period or went through something really tough, including like an Apple, is that they end up with this permanent underdog mentality where it's like them against the world. And, you know, Apple is now a $2 trillion company, wildly profitable, has more in cash than the GDPs of most countries, but they'll still not let you change, you know, <laughs> they'll still lock you into iMessage and not let you change your default web browser engine and things like this that, you know, probably are good for them competitively, but you know, it feels a little bit like, hey, can you open it up a bit? <laughs> and it, one of the things I liked about that time was the companies were all building businesses, but they would try to interoperate with each other. I would love if, if just particularly the big tech companies just kind of look around the room and say, okay, we won. Mm. You know, we've captured so much of the economic growth of the past decade. We have unassailable uh, cash positions and things like that. And no matter how bad it gets, you know, we can be Microsoft. We can go through a dark decade and still come out the other end with hundreds of billions of dollars and the ability to reinvent ourselves. So let's go consumer first. Let's go user first and say, yeah. what do our users really want? You know, I've, I've seen this happen time and again. You, you start a company and it becomes a platform and it grows really fast. The rising tide lifts all boats. But then you start to fight your own ecosystem because the pressure to grow is so great that you end up not being able to grow without, you know, extracting value from the ecosystem at ever accelerating rates. Mm. And before you know it, you know, the, the, the world around you would rather find a new platform. You know, they'd rather find a new way to, to run their business. And there's so many examples of this. I mean, you have, you have Shopify now starting to go to war with their own ecosystem and like take, yeah. I think it's, you know, rent seeking behavior. And where they're just capturing value, not adding value as much. And uh, if there's, you know, I know this is for early entrepreneurs going from zero to one. There's one thing I would, I would ask everyone to remember is like when you make it, like 
try to make it for some other people too. Cool. Well, all right, Matt. Um, I really appreciate your taking the time. I think that this is gonna, I think people are gonna be excited. Thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening.